you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. The international rules-based order, the rules-based system, the international order, we have all heard these names or variations of them at some point. Used to describe the existing balance of power, these terms mislead, implying that the nations who lead this supposed order are actually committed to any binding set of rules or principles, as opposed to Anglo-American imperialism and military might. Yet we are being told on a regular basis that, uh, in the West at least, that this rules-based order is under threat. The only alternative to this Western imperialism-based system, uh, we are being told, is the emerging multipolar world order in order to be based on cooperation, trade, and respect for national sovereignty and led by Eurasia, with that meaning chiefly Russia and China. The Ukraine crisis, uh, which appears to be a war wage just as much on social media as on the ground, is the latest event that urges us to pick a side and pick one of these two orders. Will we side with the international rules-based order led by the Anglo-American empire, or will we side with the Russia and China-led multipolar world order? As my guests and I will be discussing today, both of these options are really ruses as both sides are steadily marching towards the imposition of a tyrannical technocracy, a trend that accelerated on both sides during COVID-19 and a trend that is due to continue accelerating even further under the threat of a regional and perhaps even global war. Joining me today to pick apart the propaganda regarding global governance with a focus on current events in Ukraine is Ian Davis. Ian is an independent investigative journalist, blogger, and author from Portsmouth in the UK, and is a contributor to UK Column and Unlimited Hangout. His work is often featured by Off Guardian, The Corbett Report, and Zero Hedge, among others, and he also has his own excellent website called In This Together, which you can find at in-this-together.com. Thanks for joining me today, Ian. How's it going? I'm very well, thank you, Whitney, and thanks very much for having me. How are you? Uh, I am doing about as well as you would expect. the The world is uh, more insane every day, <laughs> it, it and uh, I'm, uh, you know, uh, feeling that for sure. And uh, also being a, a new mom at the same time as watching the world being perpetually on fire. It's 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 interesting. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, let's not talk about that anymore. Instead, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I do want to get into the Ukraine crisis later on, because uh, since that, of course, is the the topic of the hour. Uh, but before we do that, let's go over some of the ideas and facts you cover in your recent article for Unlimited Hangout entitled Technocracy, the Operating System for the New International Rules-Based Order. Um, could you first off explain what the international rules-based order is, both in terms of how it publicly presents itself, as well as in terms of what it actually is in practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, the internet. The, one of the first things that is difficult to establish with the international rules-based order is precisely what it is, because depending on the uh, language used at the time, you know, the, the definition of it has tended to change throughout history. But certainly in the post-World War II period, it has been what we might call a unipolar world war, you know, um, international rules-based system. And uh, I think it was the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Patrick Stewart from the Council of Foreign Relations in 2016, he described it as, and there's a, a quote here that's from the article, what sets the post-1945 Western order apart is that it was shaped overwhelmingly by a single power, the United States, operating within a broader context of strategic bipolarity. It constructed, managed and defended the regimes of the capitalist world economy. So what, what he is describing is a what we could perhaps call a Western hegemony. 
um, and that has kind of set the rules. And I think it, the the important thing here, and one of the reasons why I think they often talk about the rules based order, is that it isn't necessarily based on international law. Law, international law, is a, a component of it, and is often cited as reasons for taking action. But it is really about more than just international law. It's about setting standards of behaviour. And, and obviously these standards in the current, what we can call for uh, you know, brevity's sake, the IRBO, International Rules-Based Order, set by the, the Western, Western-led powers. And, they, and, it's, and it's about uh, the rules that they decree are required for trade, for um, for international relations, acceptable behaviour by nation states. Um, and they claim that this is based upon their values. And, you know, we, we might go on to talk about how kind of how much they actually adhere to those values, those values being freedom of speech, democracy, equality, um, those kind of things. So that's what the what the international rules based order is presented as to us. That it's that it's this. It, it, there's a moral component to it, and and that there's some kind of claim of of, of uh, moral superiority attached to it. And Western nations, and we see that see that all the time. We're seeing it at the moment in in regards to the conversation about the Ukraine. That you know that it's an attack on democracy, and an attack on one democracy is an attack on all democracies, um, and it's this use of uh, this sense of kind of moral superiority, especially around democracy and democratic principles, that is often used to berate the people who we might call, you know, the nations that perhaps we might see on the opposing side of that spectrum, uh, you know, which traditionally, you know, we might be talking about Russia, China, Iran, countries like that. Um, but very recently, prior to um, the, the events that are happening now, um, on the 4th of February, um, uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Putin announced uh, their model and this is a, a very uh, a different model which interestingly and I think one of the key things that, that um, they said in their statement they made they made a joint statement on what the the new international law based system might be so this would be they they actually called it the international law based world order so they're shifting the narrative in their in the new model, in the new kind of what we might call a Eurasian kind of centric model with China and Russia very much in partnership in that that new new suggested world order. They're say they're they're focusing on the law based aspect. So they're that is a direct attack um, upon the the what we might call the existing, but even the Council on Foreign Relations admit a fading Western hegemony and, and something else that the World Economic Forum have openly discussed as well about the fact that the, 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 
balance of power is shifting eastwards. Right. So this is a, this is a very it's the it's a different concept. It's a multipolar concept. They're talking more about equality between nations, but again, I think we need to take that with a pinch of salt. Um, and it's and it's the, the stressing of this law-based element. Uh, well, I just think it's interesting that, you know, the, the IRBO is, as you call it, is Western base. It's about Western hegemony, but some of the, uh, you know, th- I guess think tanks of the Western elite, uh, some of the ones you've named, uh, already have essentially been, uh, making a sales pitch more or less for this, uh, other, this multipolar world order, you know, led by Russia and China, um, uh, for a while now from, from what it seems to me as basically saying that we need to, uh, move away from the Western hegemony model, uh, even though they ostensibly benefit and helped create that model, uh, or at least help maintain it, uh, depending on when these uh, institutions were made and that they've sort of been um, saying this is where it's inevitable that things move this way. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, more to the point, it's, I think we can replace multipolar with multi-stakeholder, because, I would agree. What do you mean by that, though, for people that may not understand uh, the move there? <laughs> well, the the idea is that's been presented by China and Russia is that the, the nation state based on a system of law very much controlled by and something else that that both Putin and Xi Jinping repeatedly stress is the importance of the United Nations as a as a center for administering international law. Yeah. Um, so their argument is that nation states should all be treated equally. So you would have this multipolar system with no one individual group or no block. And this is something else that they repeatedly said in their statement about challenging the idea of blocks of nations, although ironically, that is exactly what they are forming. But the, but the idea is that everybody is equal in this in this in this uh, system of multipolarity. That is the way that the multi-stakeholder system of stakeholder capitalism is sold. That's that's the way that that's sold. That everybody it's a relationship of equal partners. Well, that that's exactly what they are talking about on in terms of international relations between nation states but as we already know those nation states are partners with multinational corporations none more so than russia and china who's you know the 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 western so not not just Western corporations, all global corporations have significant investments in both of those countries and they partner with them on a great many things, particularly in Russia's case around um, the regulation of um, information and ICT kind of information and communication technology, which again, in their statement, in their joint statement, they repeatedly referenced about this idea. And one thing that Klaus Schwab has said is that he feels that Russia are a leading voice on international ICT regulation. So as we move into the fourth industrial revolution, which obviously been, you know, the idea that the Internet of Things and the Internet of People 
global governance of that, which again is something that comes up in their joint statement about global governance of international information and communication technology, as far as the, the, we know from the World Economic Forum, um, Russia are one of the leading voices in that regulation. So, and Russia have got a particularly close uh, relationship with the World Economic Forum. There's some debate about how close Putin and Schwab are, but certainly Putin refers to Schwab as, you know, as dear Klaus. They, they knew each other well in St. Petersburg, it seems, through the St. Petersburg um, International Economic Forum, which are, is, is a partner economic forum to the World Economic Forum. Um, and during the 1990s, when um, uh, Putin was um, a rising politician in St. Petersburg, one of one of the reasons that he came to prominence was that uh, his seemingly amazing ability to attract international investment into St. Petersburg and into Russia. Well, at that time, um, it's also, he's, he's openly stated in some of his comments when he spoke at the World Economic Forum uh, Davos meeting, that, that um, you know, that, that he met, met Klaus many times in, in that period in St. Petersburg, or was familiar certainly with the World Economic Forum. Russia are also, through their um, one and one of their um, state-owned banks, Spurbank, a subsidiary of Spurbank um, called Bizone, are the, 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 the financial institution that run uh, the scenarios or set the scenarios and orchestrate the World Economics Forum's cyber polygon exercises, which yep. are their annual um, cyber security exercises. Well, I believe Bizone is actually a cybersecurity company. They're a subsidiary of Spurbank, and Spurbank is currently trying to be a not just a bank, but a universe of services, as they describe it. And so this is their cybersecurity service uh, that co-hosts that with the World Economic Forum. But you're right that, uh, it, that there is a major emphasis on financial institutions, specifically banks, uh, with Cyber Polygon. And a lot of those, um, as you point out in your article, actually are uh, Russian, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I mean, it's one of the kind of um, a slightly amusing, perhaps, um, you know, the stories that we get in the Western media about, um, you know, the threat that Russian banks and the threat that, you know, Russian um, hackers and, and so forth uh, present to the to the West. And we've had all these um uh, claims in the media about about Russia threatening a cyber security threat to the West, and yet major Western corporations, um, you know, such as Deutsche Bank and Santander and so forth, they're involved in Cyber Polygon. Um, right. Alongside, you even have people like Tony Blair <laughs> giving yeah. major panel talks at Cyber Polygon and. And uh, international security experts from the from the U.S. Uh, that used to work in cybersecurity, for example, in the Obama administration and uh, in the U.S. and also in in, in Europe, basically um, coming together and 
uh, despite so somehow, you know, the whole Russian hacker narrative doesn't apply in the context of cyber polygon. It only, <laughs> you know, applies to uh, main, you know, mainstream media stories directed at the public. But when they're all together, it essentially disappears, which tells you a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, I mean, you, you would think if, if this was a genuine risk, then then cyber polygon specifically, given who orchestrates it and runs it and sets the scenarios right. and is involved, would be, you know, a considerable <laughs> security risk. You wouldn't you wouldn't imagine that any if if what we are given to believe is, is supposed to be true, um, that any Western corporations would go and touch it with a barge pole. But and yet mm-hmm. the, the, the and yet the opposite is true. That because of, within within that they're working in partnership. I mean, Cyber Polygon itself is you know it openly states this is a this is about building partnerships on information and communication technology security, internet security. Right. So it's hard. It's hard therefore to look at these stories that we get. And give them any credence, really. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with that. Uh, Some things I I will add, and for people that are interested more in uh, ties between Russia and the World Economic Forum, I would refer you to the recent uh, podcast I did with Riley Wagaman, uh, specifically about (laughs) the Russia and the World Economic Forum um, and uh, the Sputnik V vaccine. Because Spurbank, which you were just talking about, Ian, it turns out that the uh, CEO of that, uh, Herman Graf, or Graf, depending... um, you know, if you're going to use the, I guess, Russian version or the German version of his last name, um, is, uh, on, I believe, on the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. And Spurbank was actually responsible for major parts of the development and distribution of the Sputnik V vaccine, <laughs> uh, which is pretty yeah. interesting that you would uh, entrust the distribution of, a, of the COVID-19 vaccine to a bank. Um, seems a little odd. But, you know, Seattle... Uh, or the the state of Washington uh, used uh, Starbucks to help in distribution <laughs> uh, over there, so I guess yeah. it's not that weird in that context. But it definitely should uh, raise a few eyebrows, and I think that's one thing um, we can we can see here in what we're talking about in terms of uh, these these two uh, supposedly opposing sides, because with the uh, you know the IRBO, the Western hegemony. Uh, order in, in the states that lead that and the the states that are supposed to be leading this push into the multipolar world or the multi-stakeholder uh, world, as you call it, uh, they essentially enacted the same COVID policy. Um, and it's, it's not hard to argue that some of those uh, policies were in violation of the international uh, laws that Russia and China seem to be uh, promoting as part of this world order as well. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean they—they're absolutely, you know, using the the phrase. They're in lockstep, aren't they, with globally on on in terms of, and that's again is something that came up in their joint statement that they felt that it was important to. Um, I think one of the one of the things that they said in their statement uh, was um, uh, that how important it was to maintain. Uh, the recovery, the economic recovery following the COVID crisis, and that they saw this as as ongoing, um, and that 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 in terms of Russia and China working together, um, the things that they stressed of great importance was the international fight against epidemics, world economic recovery, inclusive and sustainable development improving the global economic governance system so this is Hmm. 
precisely the same. I mean, it's it's exactly the same rhetoric and it's exactly the same objectives couched in slightly different terms than we see from the Western international rules-based order system. It's it's the same. It's indivisible. The only the only difference is uh, who is claiming to have primacy in that in that delivering of that system. But right. it's the same system. It's there's no there's no difference. Oh goody. Well, exactly, exactly. It's I mean that you you could this their joint statement could have been said by. You know, could well not Biden, but I mean, it, it could any have been, number of countries. Yeah, yeah, it could have could have been said by anybody. I mean, it's the same rhetoric. Well, what's interesting in the context of that statement is, is since it was made not that long ago, um, there's been uh, quite a, a bit of buzz, uh, not as much of uh, <laughs> not as much as the Ukraine crisis has caused, uh, but people have been pointing out that the World Health Organization is moving to update its pandemic treaty, um, and and quite a. Um, uh, p- power grab, uh, for lack of a better term for it, um, from what from what I understand, and I haven't really uh, read the nuts and bolts of it myself, but it's it's it, it would essentially give the World Health Organization and by you know the United Nations essentially um, primacy over national governments in terms of determining uh, pandemic response. Um, and so that's interesting that crops up in the joint statement. And the second thing, economic recovery, uh, I think in the case of Russia and China, a lot of that quote unquote economic recovery is fourth industrial revolutions based. Um, and I think that's the whole economic, uh, you know, system that they're essentially moving towards. And uh, over the course of COVID-19, since it began, Russia and China have made leaps and bounds in that regard. And also in terms of requiring uh, QR codes, uh, arguably China more extensive than than Russia. But in Russia, it's been quite considerable from what I understand. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, in terms of uh, I mean, one of the one of the things that stood out for me in that statement was they were talking about the digitalization of a wide range of different spheres of life, <laughs> which is oh. which, which is the benefits um, from that. Yeah, which is fourth. It's just pure fourth industrial revolution. Um, this is where we're going. There's no, there's no difference. Um, and they're also, I think the one of the things that's that's kind of important that they're trying to get across in their new model is that is that they are pinning everything on the United Nations. And, and and large global intergovernmental institutions, which would include, for example, the World Health Organization. So they 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 want to be take primacy within this this system, this law-based system based on things like World Health Organization treaties, which would see I, I mean unlike you, I haven't read the details of that, but as I understand it as well, in the event of a epidemic or crisis, centralised global governance would kick in and give them decision-making abilities over and above nation states, which is pretty much what what we've been talking about in terms of or, or, or what the both sides, both East and West, have been trying to create for generations. This this right. I, this idea 
of centralized global governance. This seems sort of uh, uh, like what happened with the Trans uh, Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Mm -hmm. Uh, Originally, that was going to have a clause that essentially created these offshore courts that would allow, uh, in practice, corporations to um, essentially uh, remake laws of, of different countries, like those offshore courts where these uh, the corporations could have sued state governments if uh, a law infringed on their profits or potential future profits, uh, right? So, uh, and so, so this is sort of the UN way of getting around uh, national governments and sort of creating some sort of body that allows them to uh, supersede um, those national governments. But of course, you know, uh, they frame themselves as sort of a, a different type of organization than a multinational corporation. But as you've noted in your work and others have noted as well, uh, the UN essentially functions like a public-private partnership. Um, mm. uh, that's really what it is. And the World Health Organization within that is also that as well. Yeah, I think what you're talking about there are the various dispute resolution mechanisms that they have in these in these deals. And they're always the same. I mean, you could look at the, um, uh, uh, right. you know, TPP or CETA or whatever. You look at these, look at these uh, dispute resolution mechanisms, and what they basically say is, if a nation state does something which which adversely impacts the profit of a multinational corporation, that's illegal. <laughs> you know, that's 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 what they what they normally boil down to. So that is corporate. And I mean, and I think of, you know, a big part of what we're seeing, which, you know, something that I discussed in the article is, is if you fuse the state with the corp with corporations, it is not unreasonable to call that fascism. That That is that is, you know, partly Correct. the definition of fascism. And that's that's, you know, the, the state ceases to become solely a political entity in terms of its its uh, relationship with the populace it then becomes a fusion between political economic financial institutions so you don't vote for for financial institutions but they are very much involved in the decision making process and that's what this globally and, it, and and I think this is the important thing as we're you know going on to discuss more current events in the Ukraine, there's no difference between either side in terms of their global aspirations. And I think I think I'm not saying that there aren't genuine, in my opinion, you know, there's genuine um, enmity there. That there are there are differences in in ambition and differences about who is going to control this system because the system is global and it's coming. And I think a lot of the uh, a lot of this kind of standoff between the powers, which is in this case is boiled over into a into a military uh, confrontation, a military conflict, um, is about jockeying for position and primacy within that system. But the system doesn't change. The system we're getting is is the one we're going to get unless we do something about it. Um, and it's just about 
kind of jockeying for position within that new world order and that's that's what's that's what's happening in my view so so in your article you basically call this this coming system um that that you were just talking about uh you uh label it as technocracy uh and you spend a good bit uh of time in the article explaining the background of that and and what it means uh, and how china has essentially been a, a testing ground in a lot of ways uh for that system uh, so for those, I, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people um, have heard the term technocracy more and more lately, especially, but there's uh, definitely a decent uh, amount of people who never heard that term, uh, you know, uh, before, you know, two years ago or even more recently. Um, so I think it would be helpful to sort of uh, give a, a brief overview of that and then we'll uh, turn to Ukraine. Yeah, so technocracy is an idea that arose during the kind of progressive era in the US uh, in the sort of 19, 1910, 1920, that, that kind of time. Um, and it ended up with um, there was... Uh, uh, an organization which brought together uh, a guy called Harris Scott and uh, M. King Hubbard, who is perhaps famous for his peak oil theory. And they, they created something called Technocracy Inc. Um, and then they, they released a document um, in which was kind of the, 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 the blueprint for what they were calling a North American technate. So, uh, you know, a, a technocracy in terms if, it, if, if when it comes into being, uh, in terms of a nation state, would be called the technate. Um, and the idea was it was very much about the about managing because one of the one of the key focus during the progressive era in the in the United States at that time was concerns about the use of resources. There, you know, the, everyone was very much concerned about about excessive use of uh, resources, running out of oil, running out of coal, running out of gas and so forth. So the idea was that you would centrally manage the allocation of resources. So they wanted to they wanted to create a system. And this is what technocracy is about and create a system that would enable the management of society. So this is central planning. So it's got some elements of what people might call kind of the socialist communist kind of uh, view in terms of economic central planning it's got that but it's also got within it uh kind of elements of the kind of capitalist system as well whereas you know corporations and companies would be able to to make investments um and to and to uh profit you know profit was is not a a, a dirty word in technocracy but uh, within the within the parameters set by the central planning committee, who were technocrats, so the the, the people at the centre of it would be called technocrats. And the idea was that these people are the experts. So we're talking about scientists, engineers, mathematicians, economists. That they are the experts, and therefore they should be appointed to make the decisions. They are the technocrats. And really, the role of government within that was simply to uh, administer the decisions of the technocrats. So that's the theory, that that was the idea. Um, now, at the time, the, what this meant was that in, it, it was technologically impossible because they were talking about issuing a new form of currency in terms of energy certificates which would all this data, so everybody, every time you spend one of your energy certificates, what you buy, where you buy, how much energy you use, all this would be collated and put together 
and would be fed back to the central planners, the technocrats, um, and that they would then make decisions about the overall allocation of resources on a technate wide. And they were talking about the whole of the North American subcontinent technate, technate wide um, system. Well, that was technologically impossible at the time. And people rightly went off the idea because they thought it was silly. And it was, uh, you know, for that period. However, a group of people, uh, notably the Rockefellers, John D. Rockefeller, um, saw the potential for this to work um, and because it was dependent upon the, the, the development of technology. So if they recognised that if technology ever caught up, then a technate would be possible. Uh, later in the 1970s, um, Sir Big New Bizzinski, um, he wrote about in a, um, a technotronic era, I can't remember the name of the book now, between, between oh, it escapes me. Uh, he wrote about that. He basically, he didn't use the word technocracy, but he basically described a technate and, and what that would look like. Then Bizzinski, he goes off with John Rockefeller, um, that, sorry, David Rockefeller, uh, and they end up forming the um, Trilateral Commission, uh, who openly state that their objective is to introduce a system of global governance um, and talk about how they want to support China to develop, um, which at the time made sense because obviously China was a, an emerging market and a massive one. So, and they wanted to, you know, for, so from a political perspective, put in a um, a wedge between China and the Soviet then the Soviet Union made sense from a geopolitical perspective and also accessing the market made sense from a from a economic perspective. However, what then followed was a period of 30 years, 40 years of exceptional foreign, what they call foreign direct investment into China from Western corporations, banks and a liberalisation of the economic and financial relationship between East and West. And this facilitated the creation in China of what we can say, and we, we can genuinely say it's a, a technate, because technocracy is not viewed in China as being a bad idea, certainly not by the ruling elite. It is considered to be a good idea. Um, and so that's fine if you've got a kind of feudal system, which, you know, if you look at Chinese history, it's very much up until up until kind of recent history has been a, a based on kind of various forms of feudalism. Now, feudalism has got its plus points as well. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that feudalism was all bad. It has worked throughout history in certain places, but nonetheless, from a democratic perspective, it is the antithesis of democracy. So that's basically the system that has been created in modern day China in terms of allowing, econ allowing some economic liberalism and allowing that to flourish attracting investment, certainly into high tech and into information technology and, and so forth, attracting that, allowing 
that to flourish, but at the same time, being very, very focused on the control of resources. And also the, that means, by extension, that means the control of the population. And that comes down to the social credit system that they've got in China, which is being increasingly used. Uh, it's not all pervasive. It's not everywhere. There, is, there are lots of places in China it hasn't reached yet, but roughly it's covered. It's reached about 80 percent of the provinces in China. Um, and it is more prevalent in the cities where they've got the, the, the facial recognition infrastructure and the communication technology to enable it to work. And it means that you are rewarded or punished for your as a, from an individual's perspective, from a citizen's of the technate's perspective, you are rewarded or you are punished for your behaviour. So as long as you toe the line, um, you know you're okay. But if you if you question the state or if you do something which the state doesn't approve of, for example, um, information smuggling. So that's that has become a crime in China. It's, you know, you're, you're bringing in illegal information. So, you know, that, that kind of, we're talking about that level of state control right down to the individual level. Um, and another aspect of it, uh, probably the primary aspect of it, is the, is the social credit system for corporations, the corporate social credit system. Again, this has got the, the purpose of this is to control the activities of the businesses that are operating in China. Now, in the joint statement that, that uh, Xi Jinping and Putin made, they are fully on board with the new global system of sustainable development. They think this is this is very important. And they are pushing the Green New Deal. But from their perspective, they are pushing that system. Now, it, to, the, to the extent of which, uh, uh, you know, to the extent that when Erki Likkanen from the um, IFRS at uh, COP26 announced the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is an accountancy, an accountancy system to control the activity of and in activity of business and investors, which is almost exactly the same as the as the social corporate social credit system in China. To the extent that when he announced that China offered to host it. So this is, as you know, as we were talking about earlier, when we uh, spoke about it being one system, the system that is being rolled out globally is modelled upon the system that has been, as I, I strongly argue, has been the testbed for that system has been in China over the last 40 or 50 years. And, and it has brought a remarkable turnaround in China's economic fortunes and its techn technological capability. So that that has certainly happened, and the population has certainly benefited from that. However, as an already developed economy, there isn't much that we're going to benefit from 
from that. It, it you know the, the benefit is not there for Western. Well, for the individual, but I think for corporations it's different. And sort of if you look at you know G fans, which I've written about in some of these other sustainable development banking initiatives led by people like Mark Carney. Uh, and people like that, they essentially say, if you join us or, you know, do this whole ESG uh, system, you know, you, you can become, you know, very successful if you play by these new rules. But if you don't adapt to the new system being imposed uh, by both sides, uh, you know, the the West and the East and everywhere in between, then uh, you won't survive. But if you choose to play by our rules, you will benefit greatly. That's sort of the 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 sales pitch there more or less to corporations um and it, it seems like that uh, there will be plenty of takers in the corporate world even if in the you know on the individual level it won't necessarily uh improve the circumstances of people in the west i don't think that's necessarily true for the corporate world no no if you partner with government then um it's it's game on in the corporate world <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, and, and, and that, fascism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, fascism, and that and that has um, the added advantage of, as uh, you know, the the role of government, which um, the United Nations have spoke about, and the World Ec um, Economic Forum, and the, even people like the World Health Organization, is about creating the enabling environment, which which they will achieve through taxing right. us. So we'll be taxed to create markets which government partners that, that who, are, who will be the selected corporations. So, you know, one capitalist kills many, and this is that in extremis, will, will absolutely be raking it in from us. So, right. but unfortunately, what that means is for, for smaller, I mean, it isn't really clear yet to the cost of adapting to because every every in the UK they've already got to the point where they've got a, a commitment that by 2025 um, all business will be submitting its sustainability standards report to the ISSB. Now they they've piloted it to start with with 300 of the FTSE 500 top companies. You know, so it's the big the big players are the people that are that are starting with that system, but their intention is to extend it to all business. So, I mean, the the cost implications of that to small to medium sized enterprises is probably beyond their reach. So they go out right. of business, leaving leaving cheap assets lying around yeah. in the market, and who's going to get them? You know the people who are partners with government. If you're partners with government, it's it's going to be a gravy train bonanza. Well, you know this is even uh, more extreme given what happened with COVID nineteen and and the lockdowns and the effect that already had on small to medium sized businesses. So this will just be an even uh, bigger opportunity, I guess you could say, for you know um, big corporations to sort of whittle down <laughs> the the remaining. Uh, small and medium-sized businesses in, in, in different countries. Very, oh, very unfortunate, uh, to say the least. Well, um, so talking about China, as, as, as you say, the, the test bed for this, I'm sure you've heard that, uh, well, this is really common more on, on the political right um, of alternative media, 
Um, they tend to uh, see China and the CCP sort of as the, I guess you could say, the mastermind for a lot of what's going on right now. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, implications that the digital ID agenda is is coming out of China and that organizations like the World Economic Forum are doing uh, China's bidding. I'm sure you've come across these uh, these claims before, uh, but they're, they've gotten a lot more uh, traction recently, for example, being uh, uh, put out pretty regularly on the, uh, the Joe Rogan uh, podcast, the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, which is like the biggest podcast in the United States. So it definitely um, is reaching a lot of people. Uh, so what do you say to uh, people that make that claim? I mean, as I, as I was saying earlier, I think, I think, you know, nation states and certainly China are, you know, the, you know, the Central Communist Party committee have an agenda of their own, you know, and they, they want a bigger slice of the pie for themselves and for their oligarch oligarch friends and i think the situation is exactly the same in russia and the situation is exactly the same in germany and france and the us and everywhere else everyone is vying for a slice of the pie but the the to those people that say china are leading on this system if you look at the statements of the of the western international rules-based order clique if you look at their uh, commitment to sustainable development goals, their commitment to um, restructuring the international financial system, their co- it's, it's the same. It's the same commitment. It's not a different commitment. So if China are leading on it, as, as some people claim, well, then the West are following China. But then, or are the Chinese following the West? Because, you know, <laughs> You know, it's the same system, but dressed up with different, different, a different sales pitch, depending on the audience that is that is listening to it. But it's the same system. And that system has not developed in China in the last 70 years. It has developed globally in the last 100 and 100 years. So this is this is the globalization of an entire economic, financial and monetary system. It's not it's not. And and nation states, in my opinion, are vying for their seat at the table within that system. Fair enough. Uh, what I would add to that is um, this system emerging in China. I mean, I, I think it's hard to blame it all on the CCP, as some people um, have done, because uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, there's been a lot of influence of Western capital and uh, forces like the Rockefellers who are very open about their historic uh, by historic, I mean several decades back relationship with the uh, Chinese government. You also have people like Henry Kissinger and the opening up of China um, and, you know, sort of these cozy business relationships that were uh, developing that helped uh, bring about the rise of China to a significant degree. So you can't really view it as something CCP exclusive because sort of inherent in that narrative is the idea that, oh, if we could defeat the CCP, then we could stop technocracy. And I don't think that's that's true at all. It's it's really a, a hydra, not, a, a, you know, a one-headed snake. You're looking at something that has, uh, you know, if you stop one political party implementing it in one country, 
you're not going to stop the rollout of a global technocratic system. No, absolutely. And I think that's you, you said something very important there. I mean, the, the, the flow of capital from west to east to enable this system to, to be put into operation first in China, that's been done willingly. I mean, the, the, you know, yeah. there, 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 are, there are so many um, decisions that were made, uh, certainly by the US administration, that went a long way towards facilitating the growth of that um, new bird, that burgeoning technocracy in China. So it's not as if the West have been opposed to that. They've enabled it through, you know, such things as, you know, allowing China to import what the quote unquote sensitive technology, you know, uh, uh, enabling, lifting, lifting embargoes that enable. So you could you could put your hard nosed economic view to that and say, well, that is simply that is simply enabling uh, uh, the growth of a foreign market for your own benefit, which is true. That, you know, there is there is an economic benefit to, to enable flourishing export markets. Of course, there is. But it's it's also doing so knowing that you are creating what, you know, in the future is going to be and, and, is, and is rapidly becoming a major leading world superpower, knowing that you're doing that to challenge the unipolar world order that you supposedly believe in. So so throughout, you know, people like Kissinger and so forth that are, that are espousing the idea of the international rules-based order and, and, and latterly uh, people like Obama and so forth and the Clintons that, that, that rattle on about this idea of the kind of Western hegemony IRBO that's based on democratic principles and so forth have been consistently throughout over the last many decades making policy decisions and making and making economic decisions which enable the growth of a superpower and an opposing superpower. Well, they they didn't do that unwittingly. They they knew what you know at some level. People were sure, certainly people like Kissinger would have been well aware of that. Well, in the last uh, 20 to 30 minutes or so, I'd really like to turn to Ukraine now since there's so much going on um, over there. Uh, so I do want to specify that we are recording this on Tuesday, March 1st. Uh, so by the time uh, this comes out, things may, may have changed. It's a rapidly uh, developing and evolving situation. Uh, so essentially what we have in uh, the the Ukraine crisis is um, these two uh, orders that you've discussed, the IRBO and the, the Russia-China camp, their multipolar uh, axis, um, opposing each other in, in Ukraine, more or less. Um, so, um, of course, we have the, um, you know, the official narrative, the prevailing uh, narrative and alternative media. Uh, the question is, is there a third narrative? Is there something else going on? Um, I don't know if you'd like to uh, start giving a brief overview of the the sort of, I guess, uh, 2D narrative as um, James Corbett recently called it, um, or if you'd just like to uh, say what, uh, just just give your thoughts on the matter. Neither's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, personally, I mean, I don't, I, 
I, I'm not even sure it's happening. <laughs> I mean, I don't. It, what do you mean by that? Well, there is a s- significant lack of reporting on the ground. I mean, from what I've seen, actually, I, I, I need to I need to uh, point this out. I've seen nothing today. I, I've been out and about today, so I don't know what's happened today. Um, but you know, I mean. If we compare it to to say the you know what happened in in two thousand and three with the Iraq war or what happened in Syria or Libya, um, you know there was plenty of footage of you know some of the the, the confrontations and skirmishes that were happening. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much of that, um, not that I've seen anyway. So I do have to question how extensive this quote unquote invasion is supposed to be or is. I mean, I've got no doubt that obviously, you know, Russia seemed to have certainly this made it to the last I saw. They'd made it to Kharkov and they were they were securing the Donbass region in the east of the Ukraine. Uh, and they've and they've obviously struck um, military targets in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Why the, why the Ukraine? But I, I don't see them. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Perhaps you could tell me what's happened today, but I don't see much evidence of them marching on Kiev or anything like that. But, uh, you know, they, perhaps they have today. I don't know. Well, supposedly there's there's uh, photos out, uh, though I haven't personally seen them, of uh, uh, Russian troops around Kiev that are looking to move in uh but uh i I, you know like i said i haven't looked at it personally and i have uh had a pretty busy day today so i haven't been uh following the the latest uh updates but i will point out uh regarding what what you said i am uh pretty surprised by the extreme amount of basically fake battle footage that has been circulating on social media i mean it just seems like almost everything that circulates is fake um and you know um, this has gone on in Syria. There's been, you know, uh, when that uh, over the years of that conflict, there have been, you know, fakes like that, too, where people used video game footage or used a picture from uh, Gaza and said it was Syria or something like that, you know, and, and that's happening now, too. But it just seems like all the, the percentage uh, of footage claiming to be from this conflict that is false in that way um, is is just much higher uh, than it's been in other conflicts. And it, it, it almost seems like this is a, a war that is using uh, social media as a major theater. I sort of alluded to that um, in the introduction because it's just um, seems to be very, very much based around uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and, and, and these these viral videos that later on, you know, have, have turned out uh, there's multiple examples. If you if you look for them, have turned out not to be what they say they are. Uh, even uh, recent pictures uh, showing or, or, or pictures that have been on multiple uh, news outlets talking about the current crisis, showing the Ukrainian president uh, Zelensky uh, in um, military equipment, wearing military equipment and a helmet and all of this. This is uh, uh, has been shown to be from last year, a tour of the border. But he was dressed like that. It's not from the current um, hostilities. Um, it's just it's just uh, it all seems very odd. But one effect, I, I will say that this is having uh, these these uh, th- this focus on social media. You know, it, 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 there's a lot of focus on uh, convincing the English speaking world that the fight in Ukraine is just that there can be uh, implying that they just need a little bit of support and this will be a quick war and they can easily defend themselves. It sort of seems like a, a way to manufacture consent among the West for 
for NATO countries to essentially escalate in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think that stands in kind of I, I know I've seen those media reports as well myself, but um, that does kind of stand in uh, a contrast to what the politicians have been saying. Because certainly in in the UK, Boris Johnson has multiple times goes on about a, a protracted a protracted crisis. You know, uh, he's used that phrase quite a few times, uh, talking about a, a protracted struggle, um, almost as if they are kind of looking forward to bogging some sort of the, the, the Russian military down in another kind of uh, uh, guerrilla warfare, you know, in, in, and and there's, you know, the response in terms of, you know, even prior prior to the actions that Russia took. And I have to say, I do have some sympathy with those who say that Russia, in 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 this instance, Russia have got a good case. I would say there is never a good case for killing people. I, I, I personally, I draw a just flat out. No, there's never a good case for killing people. And anybody that argues that there is, I think, needs to rethink their worldview, in my opinion. And I don't support what Russia are doing because they're killing people. But then I I think you also need to see it in relative terms, because such is the nature of government. That's what governments do. Governments, when push comes to shove, will kill people. And that's that's what they they certainly the US and the, the Western international rules based order, despite all its pretensions of of democratic wonder and accountability. And, you know, I mean, it's you know, how many millions of people have they killed? They killed three, three million civilian, uh, three million people just in Vietnam. I mean, it's it's it's. That's that's the nature of government, and I personally have my own problems with that. But that's regardless. But nonetheless, so if you look at it in relative terms, I do have some kind of sympathy for those that say that there is some justification for Russia in this case. And there's undoubtedly been an impact in the Ukraine from the far right. The the, the far right has been prominent. But not dominant. And I think this is the important thing. A lot of people seem to be casting the Ukraine as some sort of fascist, you know, on one side of the argument, the kind of pro-Putin side of the argument. Seems to be people sort of casting the Ukraine as some sort of fascist country. It isn't. It's it's if you look at its electoral history, both in the in the northern and and western oblasts, it's. And obviously in the southern and eastern oblasts, it's it's voted broadly socialist, not national socialist, socialist. And that's that's broadly been its electoral history in its short, short lifespan. So it's not a fascist country. And, and the idea that, that, that it is run by fascists, I think, I think is going too far. However, the far right who, who seized disproportionate political and military power as a as a as a consequence of the euro maidan coup and i think it, it was undoubtedly a coup uh yanukovych was was mm-hmm. was an elected leader who was still in office so you so that's a coup i mean you can't you can't say that it wasn't it was um 
so they they took they seized that moment with the backing undoubtedly of the West and prominent politicians like Newland and McCain and people like that certainly uh, enabled or exploited the far right in Ukraine to create what was a, a coup and and because of that support they I mean they were only I think Svoboda who is who was um the the political party of mm-hmm. associated they're not they're not the um right sector but certainly affiliated to the right sector the Svoboda got I think they got 37 or 38 seats in the um 2012 parliamentary elections or was that the president parliamentary elections so they they got that made them about the fourth largest party in the ukraine but but way way below the 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 leading party i mean i think uh, the party of regions i think it was they they had 185 seats so that gives you some sort of idea of the kind of comparison and svoboda only had 37 but nonetheless it is true to say that certainly in the in the northern and the far the further north and the further west you go, there is some popular support for outright, absolutely outright neo Nazis, and the, and they are neo Nazis. They they want to see uh, a united Ukraine. These ultras want to see a united Ukraine, uh, and they want to see. Russians, Jews, and Poles exterminated. There's no doubt that that's what they, that what how they envisage that that's their worldview. I mean, some of them are on video using that exact language. Uh, to be fair, so yeah. Um, well, I think in you know to to sum up the situation more or less, uh, you've done a a pretty all right job. Uh, though it's been a while since I followed the Ukraine crisis, I I wrote about it when I worked at uh, Mint Press. Uh, so it's it's been a couple years because I, I left there at the beginning of 2020. Um, but, you know, uh, it, one challenge I, I would raise uh, to what you brought up about um, uh, Russia and how, uh, you know, it's wrong that they're killing people. I guess the the uh, the the obviously people are dying. Yes. But I, I think the, uh, you know, to be devil's advocate here, um, I think people would say that the Ukrainian government was killing people in the Donbass. I think they have a civilian a death toll in you know above ten thousand in that conflict, what's gone, which, which has gone on for about eight years, and apparently that was escalating in the lead up to what's happening right now, uh, which had led the leaders of those two, um, I guess they're calling themselves People's Republics, to go and request independent status from um, from the Russian government, which sort of ended up setting off a lot of this. Um, as I understand it. But beyond that, um, I would definitely agree that uh, 2014 was a coup. And following that coup, um, these uh, far-right elements uh, at least became more prominent. Um, uh, How much more prominent, I I think, is something that uh, perhaps could be debated. But I think it's uh, uh, you can't really say that those forces don't exist in Ukraine, and they do have influence. Um, but, um, I, I think it, it's not as, uh, it, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily fair to paint it all, paint all of, um, Ukrainian, Ukraine's, po- uh, politicians and the entire Ukrainian, uh, post-coup state as, uh, necessarily all neo-Nazi. I don't think that's, um, I think that's probably, um, extreme, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I have, I have seen some people, um, 
some people do that, but I think that tends to happen when there's there's conflicts. You know, people tend to uh, polarize, and you know, I mean, there there's the people saying Putin is literally Hitler, uh, and people saying Putin is really great for doing this. Um, you know, I don't really plan to take a side because, as we've been talking about, these two sides here ultimately um, are. Uh, embracing the same sort of uh, system ultimately so um, what we're having here is a uh, I guess you could call it sort of like a proxy conflict between uh, the the two camps we we've spent most of the podcast talking about thus far yeah yeah no and I, and I think that you know de- definitely the um, you know if you look at kind of if you look at it from an international law perspective uh, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic have ostensibly followed international law they they meet the criteria for a for a, an independent state um and it's their right to declare one if they wish you know i mean you could look at it from that perspective uh, well also the Min- the minsk ag- agreements as i understand it were going to allow them to have a referendum as to whether or not they wanted to be independent and they were denied that right yes uh, by the government in kiev which has been uh shelling them instead for the better part of uh seven years now i mean it, it is a sticky situation but uh, a lot of the people claiming to care about ukrainians right now didn't care very much about the <laughs> the ukrainians living in, in in those particular provinces for the past seven years which um i would <laughs> would stress them to consider read up to you know consider reading up about you know uh the conflict up to this point and and regarding what i said about the whole ukrainian government not being it being unfair to characterize it all as 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 Nazi, um, you know, as I understand it, the president, the current president Zelensky, uh, his campaign was about mending ties with uh, Russia, or, or rather, uh, de-escalating the extreme anti-Russian sentiment expressed by some of these forces uh, that became more prominent after the 2014 coup. And I mean, that shows that there was some sort of political will, at least at that time during that election, which I think was 2019, not that long ago, uh, to improve the situation uh, with Russia and and to uh, de-escalate the conflict in the Donbass. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Russia... Um, so on the one hand, you've got a population that are kind of in the Donbass that are, that are being shelled. The Minsk agreement, it was the Ukrainian... I mean, one of the things that Putin, I think, said, I can't remember when he said it, but one of the things he pointed out was that it didn't really matter what the Minsk agreement was because he felt that the Ukrainian military and the National Guard, which is, contains these, these, these Azov battalions who are, who are closely related to the, to the right sector, who were instrumental in the Euromaidan shootings, in my opinion, um, they aren't under, you know, they're not under being controlled by, by, you know, the, the Kiev central government. They're, they're, they've got a certain amount of, or seem to have a certain amount of autonomy. And I think Putin pointed that out and said, look, it, you know, we've made an agreement twice because there was Minsk in Minsk agreement in 2014 and again in 2015, where they did exactly, as you said, guaranteed some, some of the sort of borders of, of the, of the region and offered hopefully at some point for a referendum amongst the new republics to see whether they wanted to to form a an independent republic that didn't happen because following the agreements either either at the behest of kiev or and i think that, that putin might have had a point 
independent elements within the Ukrainian military um, were carried carried on shelling the Donbass and shelling civilian populations. And so from that perspective, you know, Putin has got a, a, a right to say, you know, we're there to defend Russian speaking and further south actual ethnic Russians um, from attack by um, the elements, certainly within the Ukrainian forces. And, and to what extent Kiev controls them is, I think, questionable at times. But, you know, it's difficult to say. So there's that part of it, which, again, you would say, you know, that gives Putin some sort of uh, legitimacy, I suppose you could say, in, in terms of, of the action that they've taken. However, I think the bigger picture that is far more pressing on probably, you know, the Russians' minds is the expansion of NATO. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which which is really what they're what they're where they're drawing the line. Um, well, I think a lot of the rhetoric out of Russia right now is emphasizing the Nazi angle, but I think ultimately, yeah. you know, this goes back to the NATO expansion issue. Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah. Well, well, I mean, obviously, I mean, you know, NATO. I mean, you can you can go back to um, I think it was uh, two thousand and eight, um, and it was the the Bucharest uh, summit meeting in 2008 uh, and clause 23 of that and I'm, I'm quoting this so this this is going back to 2008 and obviously up to 2008 NATO following the fall of uh, the Soviet Union or the or the, the disillusionment of the Soviet Union in 1991 was it 1990-91 NATO have been continually expanding Eastwards, I mean, and, and taking many of those nations into into, uh, and there's no doubt that they. And I think this is another point which is true. That that's kind of uh, famous quote of not one inch eastward, which Secretary of State uh, James Baker made to Gorbachev. It, it wasn't just that he said that. He did say that on numerous occasions. I think he said it three or four times. But there were there were formal agreements in place quite a lot of formal agreements in place that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. It then completely ignored those, ignored them completely. And in, in the 2008 Bucharest summit, summit, Clause 23 reads, quote, NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agreed today that these countries will become members of NATO. Now, from a Russian perspective, what does that mean? That means that means U.S. forces and more importantly, perhaps U.S. US missile capability right on their southern border. I mean, and I mean that I mean, I suppose for those that say that Putin and Russia haven't got a point, um, Imagine what the situation would be if, well, think of the Suez crisis or or imagine what the situation would be if Mexico had an agreement with China, that China would sight its missile silos on the Mexican-US border. I mean, what, what would be the US reaction to that? So, yeah, people have started pointing to this as a, a, uh, an inversion, in a way, of the Cuban Missile Crisis during the Kennedy administration. Yeah, um, Cuban Missile Crisis, Suez, I was thinking. 
All right. Well, we've talked a good bit about the 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 2D narrative, I guess you could say, uh, to an extent. Uh, but you've uh, pointed to a couple things uh, that you think uh, suggest that there may be something else uh, at work here. Um, one thing I do want to uh, point out um, is it seems like to me that this was sort of a, a baited war, at least from the Western end. Um, because you had the Biden administration really upping the ante before this, uh, these hostilities ended up manifesting themselves. Um, and if you believe the Russian side anyway, the decision per uh, Putin was made to uh, take this action, military action that's been taken, um, in large part because Zelensky of Ukraine went to the Munich Security Conference and implied uh, that, well, pretty much said, really, that Ukraine was going to be exploring how to, uh, acqu- uh, you know, b- become a nuclear power again. Uh, so uh, obviously, that's uh, throwing considerable fuel on the fire. And I think it's quite clear that given the complaints of Russia over the years about Ukraine and NATO expansion, specifically as it, it appears to relate to Ukraine, with Ukraine doing exercises with NATO and NATO infrastructure creeping into Ukraine, and the, you know, I, I think the West... Uh, which influences uh, Ukraine to a significant degree, uh, especially after the the 2014 um, um, coup, would have known that that would have been a red line for Putin, right? So you could argue that, at the very least, uh, the West, uh, and, and there's other examples as well of sort of these, uh, you know, escalations, you could argue sort of this prodding coming from uh, the West to sort of try and, and go to Russia into taking some sort of action. I mean, I think you can make that case uh, with what's going on right now. But the question is, you know, are uh, the people on the other side, you know, mainly Russia here, um, sort of, uh, are they in on it? Right? I think some people have been asking that because of the the, the common World Economic Forum ties between these sides and and some of these, uh, you know, the, the, the commonality of uh, this move towards technocracy like we've been talking about today. Um, so I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about if you think uh, this is the case and why that would be, if so. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's been a lot of manoeuvring in preparation for this. You can you can look at, uh, for example, in um, early February, China agreed to buy Russian grain and that is um, a, a significant move because Russia uh, is a is a grain exporter, particularly to the to the European Union, um, and it's never been able to export to. There's been a bit of protectionism going on there with China. Their uh, argument that they that they didn't want Russian grain was because they said it was infested with weevils, but. Um, They've decided that they that they don't mind so much about that anymore, and they 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 got an agreement with Russia, which was uh, taken on the eighth uh, or prior. So this is the eighth of February before the military action started, but obviously it was at the time when the U.S. was saying there's going to be a war, there's going to be a war, there's going to be a war, which is an unusual. I thought I found that quite unusual that that the US were kept saying this is the date of the invasion. This is when the invasion is going to be. This is what Russia are going to do. And then Russia complied with that and did did what the what the Western intelligence agencies were warning of. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so so China have got this agreement to um, to buy grain. There's also uh, 
when uh, Xi Jinping and Putin made their joint statement about their new law-based world order, um, that was the same day that Putin announced a $117 billion investment uh, or worth of Russian oil and gas deals with China, centering on a, 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 the northward expansion of the Belt and Road project and what they're calling the Arctic Belt and Road, where um, they're opening up the, the Arctic for um, exploration. It, it, the, China are building uh, the inf or heavily invested in constructing the infrastructure to enable this to get off the ground. In fact, I think China are actually building whole towns in, in the Arctic, in the Russian Arctic. Um, Russia are building the biggest seaport in the world um, and are investing billions in doing so. Um, and obviously, I mean, these, this comes at a time when in response to the, the actions that Russia have taken in the Ukraine, there's going to be the economic sanctions are being applied, uh, which has already seen the ruble um, plummet. Um, but the impact equally, you know, one of the first things that Schultz did in Germany when the, when this kicked off was 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 to to formally announce the the, the formal um, cessation of any kind of idea of going forward with the Nord to uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to, to Northern Europe, which would supply Northern Europe with, um, well, cheap, cheaper gas, much cheaper gas. than, than Considerably it, cheaper from what yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. much cheaper gas. Um, so that's all come to an end. So, uh, you know, then there's this, this, talk, this talk about uh, removing Russian uh, banks, blocking their ability to borrow on the markets. Well, and who, the SWIFT. System and the well. SWIFT system. Mm -hmm. Well, Russia's got its own alternatives already um, set up for because all the SWIFT system is really is a communication system. It's not actually a financial system. It's just a a way of trading. I mean, Russia's got already got alternatives that it's set up for that. Right. And, and so have China. So the the net the net effect of this is to in my in my view is if this how if this plays out potentially how this could play out is to throw Europe into uh, an, a highly insecure um, certainly its energy security could be threatened its and food, food security food, to an extent its mm -hmm. food security could be threatened which is which is going to exacerbate the uh, inflation that we're already seeing. So it's not good for Europe. I mean, obviously, a war in Europe is not good for Europe. But I mean, in terms of the response from the West is not good for Europe. Yeah, it seems like the Western leaders aren't really thinking about these events, given their actions. But it seems like what you laid out that led up to this crisis in terms of economic deals between Russia and China, they were certainly... Uh, Russia was certainly preparing even more so than they have been in the past couple years to weather uh, the worst possible sanctions the West could impose upon them. 
Uh, is that what it, that's sort of what it, it seems, uh, seems like to me. Um, but that's, I, you could argue also that that's sort of been a project several years in the making because these threats like to eject Russia from SWIFT and other things, um, have been circulating for a while. Um, you know, these, uh, this isn't a new threat. This is the first time I guess they've uh, agreed to enact it, but it's been, it's definitely been discussed before and I'm sure Russia is aware enough of it, um, that they would, uh, move in that direction. But I think it's interesting that I think this is, uh, going to be used, well, it, it's my opinion, but I think it's it's highly likely that Russia domestically is going to use this crisis as a way to uh, advance its own sort of uh, digital currencies, uh, probably a CBDC of some sort, if not the digital ruble, you know, a spur bank that we talked about earlier has the spur coin yeah. or something like that. I think that's likely to see an increase in domestic use um, and circulation as the, you know, the the ruble suffers because of the... Uh, effect of Western saying and Western sanctions, how that affects the international value of that currency um, and things like that. I think it's going to be capitalized on uh, in Russia domestically to advance some of this, uh, you know, technocratic stuff we were sort of talking about um, earlier. Uh, and it's going to be justified as a way to uh, work around sanctions. And, and at the same time in Europe, you're going to have a, a big crunch uh, in energy and uh and food and what better way to get people to accept things they wouldn't normally accept but under uh the fog of war and uh, a hungry and cold population you know it seems sort of like a perfect storm in a sense yeah i mean and i would i, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that i mean that's what it looks like to me it looks like a, it's just a, another use of crisis so it's the manufacturing of crisis well manufacturing might be the wrong word Obviously, you know, at times, geopolitics falls out of balance. And, you know, you can definitely look at it from Russia's perspective and say that, you know, the expansion of NATO eastward has been has been ongoing for decades. And, you know, at what point do they... I mean, uh, Putin and Lavrov openly said, didn't they, that, that NATO expansion into Ukraine was a red line. They they repeatedly said that. Yeah. So I think it's been known for years. They've been pretty clear about it. I mean, even one of my old reports I was looking at the other day uh, for Mint Press back written in 2017 uh, basically says that verbatim. So, I mean, this has been known for for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the idea of of constantly pushing. So one thing, I mean, you, you, you know, the rhetoric that is coming out of the Western political establishment is just insane. I mean, then. Talk, yeah, some of it is for sure. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. talking about, you know, our democratic, in, you know, how we democratic institutions must be protected and a, an attack on one democracy is an attack on all democracies. It's just not well, that sounds very much like NATO Article Five, though, doesn't that yes, talking point to yeah, you? Exactly, and and that's that's uh, unsettling because they've invoked Article Four, I think, for the first time, which is where they basically get together and talk about the possibility of invoking Article Five. Um, yep. You know, it's it it it's it's weird. I I, I tend to think in terms of. Um, you know, potential uh, foreknowledge or something like that, or, or you know, pre-planned uh, efforts to sort of stoke this conflict and manifest it. It really seems to me that the the West is uh, doing it. Not to say that it's not possible that 
that Russia may be in on it, right? But it it just seems uh, I definitely uh, have come to the conclusion from what I've been seeing that you know the CIA specifically seems to be stoking a lot of stuff. And uh, one of the part of the reason I say that is because there's a uh, the CFR's um, uh, outlet, Foreign Affairs. Uh, was the first to essentially say that the CIA is uh, likely already arming and training potential insurgents uh, in Ukraine, specifically focusing on uh, paramilitary groups training them to kill Russians, uh, including those that have the same sort of uh, viewpoint, I guess you could say, as as you know these neo-Nazi groups like Azov Battalion, um, and that they've uh, you know are, are they're they're pretty open that the CIA is planning an an, an insurgency. Uh, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I think just today, uh, Hillary Clinton was on MSNBC saying, uh, talking about the Ukraine crisis, bringing up uh, the funding and financing of the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which if you're not familiar, uh, that is the group that was funded by the CIA in Afghanistan to stop the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And that group eventually morphed into both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda um, and is, uh, you know, basically... Uh, you know, the whole blowback theory uh, of 9-11 is, is based on that. Uh, but, you know, I would personally argue because of my personal beliefs about 9-11 that, you know, those groups essentially remained assets um, of, uh, you know, the where their funding originally came from, especially in the case of Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda more so than uh, the Taliban. And one thing I found really stunning, and if you're familiar with my work in 2020 about the war coming war on domestic terror, uh, this may be familiar to you. Um, 2020 was the first year that the U.S. intelligence community did not issue their worldwide threat assessment. Instead, it was the first year that DHS, which has been around since like 2003, issued their domestic threat assessment, which I said at the time uh, was a big shift away from the war on terror internationally to the war on domestic terror. Um a big signal of that from the intelligence community. And then there was this article published in Politico that I included in my, uh, I guess, what became the election special I did with Ryan Christian of TLAV. Um, it's entitled, Experts Knew a Pandemic Was Coming, Here's What They're Worried About Next. Uh, this was authored in May of 2020 by uh, one of the top directors at the Aspen Institute, a think tank funded by the Rockefeller's brother fund, the Carnegie Corporation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation chiefly. Um, and what's fascinating is that in their near-term threats, it says likely to impact the U.S. within five years, the top one is the globalization of white supremacy. Uh, that first paragraph reads, uh, terrorism today conjures images of ISIS fighters and suicide bombers. But if you ask national security officials about the near, the top near-term terrorism threat on their radar, they must universally point to the rising problem of white nationalist violence and the insidious way that groups that formerly existed locally have been knitting themselves together in a global web of white supremacism. In recent weeks, the State Department formally designated a white supremacist organization called the Russian imperial movement as a terrorist organization because it's trying to train and seek seed adherents around the globe, inspiring them to carry out terror attacks. It continues, there are serious and explicit warnings about this coming from U.S. government and foreign officials that eerily echo the warnings that came about for al-Qaeda before 9-11. Uh, this is pretty interesting uh, because essentially if you have the CIA right now basically admitting that they're arming uh, white supremacist forces and creating an insurgency in Ukraine. And they're, they've also been essentially saying uh, that there's this global web of white supremacy to come. I guess then you get your war on 
domestic terror in uh, countries where there's a, you know, uh, where, wherever they want to seed it, really. Um, and they can just say, oh, this was a, a person radicalized in Ukraine. And then you have your war on domestic terror ready to go. And pretty much in the same vein as this, um, you had the the health minister of Saxony um, in Germany uh, being quoted by the New York Times as saying, you can't distinguish anyone who was on the streets because of vaccines and COVID restrictions and who was already radicalized uh, as part of a uh, article in the New York Times about how in Germany security agencies see uh, a merging, they say, of people who oppose COVID restrictions and the far right in Nazism. Uh, so it seems like there's a lot going on here. Uh, and I'm kind of concerned that we're seeing the the seeding of the the infrastructure, I guess you could say, uh, for a, the uh, war on domestic terror as a way to sort of uh, uh, quell any sort of dissent that would pop up in white majority countries in the West as uh, this uh, new system that we've been we talked about in, in the first uh, part of the podcast is hammered through. Do you have any thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, no, that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> the, I mean, the irony is, I mean, everybody that opposed the COVID restrictions was was cast as a, a, a far right um, or Nazi, <laughs> right, uh, extremist. Mm-hmm. And now they will, I think. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got the you've got the crazy irony that you've got the the truckers' uh, freedom convoy who were, you know, from every background. Many many were um, Native American, Native Canadian, um, Aboriginal people. That they they cast them as fascists because they said they were fascists. Meanwhile, the Trudeau government was sending weapons and arms. Uh, and heavy weaponry to fascists, to re- to real real fascists. Well, well, Christia Freeland, the Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, was just participating in a pro-Ukrainian protest in Toronto uh, after basically uh, <laughs> pulling out some insane tyrannical moves, freezing personal bank accounts of people for protesting her policies. Yeah, I mean it's madness. Yeah. Uh, Well, I hope Canadians realize that they should be holding, trying to hold their government more accountable than than Russia accountable at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I mean, you've got a situation where the UK, the UK has been engaged in something called Operation Orbital for the last four, four or five years or three or four years. um, And they have been training the Ukrainian National Guard. Well, there was a statement that came out from the Ukrainian National Guard saying that that would include the Azov battalions. So this is the British training. I mean, and, that, and going back to what you said earlier, no, I'm certainly not suggesting that all the Ukrainian military and all the people that live in Ukraine are fascists or not neo-Nazis. They're not. What I am suggesting is that there are there are definitely neo-nazi elements within the military and within their political uh, hierarchy who have seized a disproportionate amount of power certainly power that goes beyond their electoral uh, reach so there's no doubt that the british certainly and the americans and um Lots of countries have been training Ukrainian forces, and a lot of that training will have been received by the Azov battalions, who are by and large neo-Nazis. 
It just seems like a repeat of, of Afghanistan and, and Syria and some of these other conflicts, uh, and it's been going on uh, for a while. But what's interesting uh, in, is that now there's this war on domestic terror infrastructure being set up, not just in the U.S., but um, the way the Biden administration set that up, it's for all the Five Eyes countries. It's information sharing. It's sort of like an Operation Condor-style uh, war on domestic terror. Um, so it's definitely going to reach beyond the border. Um, of the U.S. and you have one of the main entities behind that war on domestic terror, the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, openly admitting uh, not that long ago that uh, white supremacist groups in the U.S. that they were concerned about were going to Ukraine and training with Azov Battalion and then coming back and and stuff like that. So they already have uh, their narrative set up to run with this. And I, I think, unfortunately, the current conflict uh, in Ukraine is going to uh, develop in that direction, especially with the CIA and the CFR and Hillary Clinton <laughs> all signaling that. I mean, that that definitely concerns me. Um, do you have any concluding thoughts uh, before we wrap up here? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't believe. <laughs> I think the thing that, that strikes me is that when you're trying to sift through, I've got a, a couple of our articles that are coming out. I'm writing a two part kind of deep dive into the current situation of of what is going on in Ukraine at the moment. And I'm, I'm looking at it very much from the historical perspective in part one and then in part two. Uh, the geopolitical, the current geopolitical situation. And and in doing that, I've been researching both necessarily, both the Western media reports and documentation and even, even official documents and Russian and Chinese and other media reports and their documentation. And looking at the two, the thing that strikes me is that neither of them are trustworthy. You know, no, neither neither of them. They're both in both senses. They're both biased. They're both pushing an agenda. Both East and West are pushing an agenda, and the truth almost certainly lies in the grey area in between. It's not if we if we go down the line of believing everything that we are told, especially in our conflict situation. From either side, we've got no chance. We've got no chance of understanding what is actually happening. So I think it's really important that people think critically about the information that they're given and just try to rationally look at the evidence and and contrast it from both perspectives because the truth is in the middle. It's not. It's not at those extremes, and it is extreme. Both narratives are extreme. All right. We'll have to leave it there, Ian. Thanks so much. Uh, before we go, uh, could you let people know how they can uh, find your work and support you? Uh, yeah. Uh, please go to my website, which is uh, in this together with hyphens between the word in dash this dash together dot com. Um, and also check out my work on um, uh, UK column. Uh, and if uh, there is a, a donation, you can donate and support me, support my work on my website. Um, crypto's welcome. And I'd just like to say thank you very much for having me, Whitney. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and thanks to you, Ian, for coming back on for the second time. Hopefully uh, you'll be back on again in the future um, as the world continues its descent into what appears to be total madness. Uh, anyway, I would also like to thank the people who support this podcast and people who listen and share it. 
Um, if, uh, of course, the more people who uh, share this podcast, the more people listen. So I would really encourage you, if you enjoyed what you heard today, uh, to share this uh, widely once it becomes public, as people are probably familiar with by now. Uh, all of my podcasts are premium uh, for just a few days, available to uh, subscribers on Rockfin and people who subscribe through the unlimitedhangout.com website. Uh, if you choose to support uh, Unlimited Hangout, of course, you will also be supporting uh, not just my work, but those of other Unlimited Hangout contributors like Ian. Uh, so anyway, thanks so much, everyone, and catch you all in the next episode.